Hi, I'm Dr. George Thomas and welcome to our final episode in our 2022 election series of Reasonable and Necessary. I put this series together to help you decide who you think has the best plan for our NDIS ahead of the federal election. And today, you'll hear from some of our leading disability advocates about what they think. So, let me introduce you to them. Starting off, we've got Sam Connor, President at Pivot Disability Australia. Bruce Monaghan, former chairperson of the NDIA and the executive chair of the Melbourne Disability Institute. Graham Innes, former Disability Discrimination Commissioner, and Kirsten Dean, former campaign director of Every Australian Counts. Welcome to you all. Hey, George. Hi, George. 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 I want to start with an issue that is on everyone's mind, and that's the issue of funding cuts. Kirsten, can I go to you first? What did you make of the responses around the sustainability of the scheme? Well, when I listened to it, I was really struck by how one-dimensional the responses were. Um, As someone who cares really, really deeply um, about the future of the scheme, I'm absolutely beyond frustrated at the very simplistic conversation that we've been having about the value of the NDIS. The concept of sustainability has two parts to it. One is cost and the other is benefit. And for the last two years in particular, we've had uh, politicians, we've had people in the media, we've had really expensive fancy pants consultants, we've had former NDIA staff who've all been on broadcast about how much the scheme is costing. What we haven't heard is the value uh, that it delivers and the benefits um, that um, that it delivers. And that's a source of incredible uh, frustration to me. We cannot have a conversation about the sustainability of the NDIS unless we look at the two parts of the equation. What does the scheme deliver and how much is that going to cost? And when we talk about benefits, we've got to look at benefits at three levels. The benefit to the individuals, benefit to the economy, and the benefit to the broader Australian um, community. Now, obviously, the first is the most important, the benefit to people with disability, but the other two are not insignificant. Um, You know, and it's really... It's just I'm just gobsmacked that we are this far into the scheme and still the only modelling about the benefits of the NDIS is the original Productivity Commission like 10 years ago and then the recent per capita report which found that for every dollar invested in the NDIS there was a $2.25, $2.25 benefit to the economy. So we are just having this incredible one-sided conversation about how much the NDIS costs and we're not having a conversation about the benefits that delivers. And we can't have a real national conversation about that unless we look at both things. Bruce, you were the architect of the NDIS. Tell me, what did you uh, think around that conversation? The two points I want to make, um, George. The first is it's very clear to me that there is now an excessive focus 
on the short-term costs of the NDIS and short-term cost cutting. And many of those cuts are being applied to the people with the biggest plans who are also the most vulnerable participants in the scheme. And my fear is that many of these cuts are counterproductive because it will lead to higher costs down the track. And so we need to get back to the original concept of an insurance scheme that invests in people with disability and minimises their lifetime costs, not the costs in a particular year, and maximises their lifetime opportunities. And so is aligned with the goals of the individual as well as the goals of the scheme. The second point is that there has been an independent review of the sustainability of the NDIS by Taylor Fry, a group of consulting actuaries. What their report suggests is that costs are going to be higher than originally estimated. But as Kirsten said, you also have to look at the benefits. But the critical thing about that report is there is no analysis of why costs are higher than originally forecast. And until we understand why costs are higher, you can't possibly look at potential policy solutions and expect that they're going to deliver what might be needed. To give a simple example, if costs are higher because prevalence rates of disability are higher, then those people just need to be in the scheme. To exclude them would be short of, would put all the priority on short containing short-term costs. On the other hand, if costs are higher because the NDIS is an oasis in the desert, then we need to do something about that desert. I like that analogy that you give there that the oasis in the desert. We'll get more into that. But let me just turn uh, to Sam. A lot of a lot of the the issues around costs have been um and 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 funding cuts have uh, been around people who uh you know, have autism, right? Like uh, we're seeing that the 40% of the participants have autism and and, and that the back group is, is seen as having a higher higher use of the scheme. What are your reflections on that, Sam? Look, I think there's been so much um, scaremongering and demonising of people with disabilities through all of this. You know, this constant narrative that we have close to election time is that, you know, the NDIS is a big cost blowout and you never hear that about Medicare, right? Um, but I think also there's been quite a lot of demonising of particular groups and that includes autistic people and people with mental health conditions. And so it's tricky. Um, they, they haven't suddenly become, you know, nobody has gotten autism from the water, you know, so there's not a, a massive blowout in autistic people. Um, there probably is a blowout in the need for services for um, people with autism. And also we have a bigger marketplace now, you know, compared to what we had in 2016 or 17. So a lot of this has been driven from, um, you know, state services, um, you know, government services closing down and people applying to the NDIS instead. So um, the idea that we've got a particular diagnostic group, you know, and there's also the thing of this primary diagnosis, right? 
you know, so there's no such thing as a disabled person. Maybe you, George, you might just have one disability, but you know, most, most people with a disability have at least one co-occurring disability or condition. And so this idea that we've got this medicalised thing where, you know, there's a bunch of autistic people who are causing a problem. It's just not true. There's people who have Down syndrome and co-occurring autism, autism and co-occurring schizophrenia. The idea of the scheme was that we had a scheme that was not medicalised. And, um, you know, I really reject the idea that it's just due to one particular cohort of people. So, yeah, it's been, it's been a bit of a ride over the last year, hasn't it? Well, I agree with everything that's been said, George, but I'd add just a couple of small points. Firstly, with regard to um, Bruce's oasis in the desert uh, analogy, which I think is a very powerful analogy. One of the things that's, that's, um, if you like, made that oasis harder to reach, I think, is the moving of ILC funding um, back to the department from the agency. Because the purpose of ILC funding is, if you like, to um, to retake the desert, to, to grow trees in the desert so that it's not the oasis in the desert, but so that the, um, the area of the oasis or the area of um, uh, activity expands. And I think it was a real mistake to, um, for that to occur. Um, and the other point that I'd make about cost is um, it is so one-dimensional, the conversation, except for people with disabilities, because we have been saying this since the beginning of the scheme, I remember making speeches before the scheme was agreed to uh, about the benefits, uh, the broader benefits that the NDIS would bring. And it, I agree with Kirsten, it's absolutely appalling that the only two pieces of research that have addressed that are the Productivity Commission um, back before the scheme started and then per capita. Uh, thank God for the per capita research is what I would say. Sorry, George, can we just chip in? Because Kirsten's going to beat me to it otherwise. That You know, somebody FOI'd the, um, the ILC money and there's a huge amount of money that hasn't been spent. So it's been, we've got this gatekeeping of funding and, and ring fencing of funding, which is intended for the scheme. So there's a huge bucket of money, which is in the millions of, um, of ILC funding, but also of underspent funds, which if you remember, went you know, got sucked into consolidated revenue in 2019 right. to win an election, right? $4.2 yep. billion of that money. Yep. So it goes into a thing called the Disability Futures Fund that's in a, a thing called the Future Fund. And so people with disability have deliberately, in my view, been starved of funding. And I don't know if you've ever tried to get a wheelchair through sand, but, um, you know, it's <laughs> the things that should have been put in place to build those paths so that we can actually get to the oasis in the desert, this is just going to go on forever now, Bruce, um, haven't been put in place at all. And here we are, you know, struggling, um, trying to just get any help at all. And we need to plant some trees in that desert and get some, get some water flowing through the desert. Mm. Yeah. So, Fair George, yes. can I just be really cheeky and add, because you started with cuts and we haven't yeah. talked specifically about no. the cuts. And one of the things that I would say is that... Well, well always... Kirsten, can I, can I say that when I was, you know, talking to Linda, Linda said, there are no cuts. She was very strong on that. 
And I wanted to bring that up because I'm always pleased. I'm always pleased when the Treasurer on Budget Night says, you know, we will fully fund the NDIS. And I was, you know, it's really good to hear the Minister say we will fully fund the NDIS. But I would say two things about it. First of all, it's true in that what she said is that there's been no overall budget cut to the NDIS. The budget for the NDIS wasn't cut in the federal public papers. That's absolutely true. But it is also true that individuals have had their plans cut. Um, and, to, and we can see that both by the number of people who are now uh, taking their appeals, appealing the agency and then going to the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, but also that the average plan size has come down over the last two quarters. So people are getting their plans cut. And it's a bit disingenuous to suggest that that's not true. And the second thing is she says that the NDIS will always be fully funded. Um, I'd love you, if you get a chance to ask the follow-up question is, what kind of NDIS are you going to fully fund? Mm. Is it the one we're having now where people are really struggling to get the stuff they need or is it going to be something different? So if you get a chance to kind of ask the follow-up questions, that's the question that I'd really like answered. And George, I'm sorry, but I'm going to follow Kirsten's example because there's one more point on cuts that I'd want to make, and that is that um, it's it is true that the that the scheme has been fully funded, but if you look at the staff freeze, which has been in place for I can't remember how long now, the effect of that is that the the agency is employing more and more consultants at a higher cost than it would be if the staff were inside the agency. So that in itself is taking away money from plans. Bill said that he's going to uh, address that. So how about we, we, we look at that now? Bill did talk about um, a response to that and, and getting the staff, permanent staff. Uh, uh, we, had, uh, we also heard Jordan talk about uh, he wants to lift the staffing cap. Should the staffing cap be lifted? What are your oh, thoughts? Without a doubt. Um, I've worked in government agencies that have had um, uh, staffing caps applied, and it's really an insidious way to reduce the effectiveness of an agency. Um, efficiency dividends, I'm, I would put in the same um, category, because effectively, in real terms, you just get less and less money as the years go forward. It, it's, it's ludicrous to have the numbers of consultants and the numbers of expensive lawyers and you know, I know we'll come to this, but we've seen a huge uptake in um, in spend on AAT um, issues, and it's a broader issue than just the cost of lawyers. But that's a factor. Um, uh, that that um, and all of this money that the agency has to spend um, uh, means that fewer people get um, the same dollars in their plans, and we know plans are being cut. Uh, so so um, let's not um, let's not kid ourselves that that's not happening. Sorry, just before we move off this point, I, I think the key point here is that we need an NDIA that has the capacity and the capability to deliver the NDIS. Yep. It needs to be staffed with permanent staff because we need to build the capability of the agency. A related point which Jordan picked up was that the relationship between participants and agency staff is not meant to be transactional. It's relational. Yeah. So that people's needs are not just met 
but anticipated. The other side to this, which we haven't touched on, is that there has been a huge cost in terms from the staff cap, and that is the local area coordination has yes. not been able to fulfil its role of building community capacity and making our communities more inclusive. Yeah, absolutely, and that, that's something that um, I think definitely needs more attention. Uh, let's talk about the AIT. Graham did mention this, and I think it's good to turn to this now. Um, we had um, a few varying responses around the fact that there's more and more people going to the AIT. Uh, Linda's response was, well, there's more people in the, in the scheme. And what are your reflections? Can I start with you, Sam? Oh, lots of reflections about the AAT. I mean, there's been countless articles in the last couple of months about the AAT having um, being stacked with people who don't necessarily have the same qualifications as people in the past have, and that they're being political appointments. And you know, whether there's truth to those ideas, I have no idea. And if they've impacted upon um, people with disability. The, the fact is that people with disability generally don't go to court unless it's dire, you know, and because we don't have the capacity or capability and most people can't get legal aid, most people can't get an advocate, you know, an advocacy service because the advocacy services are backed up till, you know, I don't know where. And so um, the number of appeals, which has, you know, gone up by something like 400% and the amount of money that has been spent on lawyers by the NDIA, um, if things are this dire, knowing those things, and I think I think there's it's just in crisis. You know, there's um, we need to make sure that people have got good pathways to having complaints, but it shouldn't have to go to court. We also know that people quite often will get a phone call from the agency the night before they go to court, and it will be withdrawn. And so, the amount of stress and pressure that it's putting people with disability under is just untenable, and that needs to change. Yes. George, 30, George 33% of appeals since the scheme began have been in the last two quarters. There's just been a huge yes. upsurge in, in those, which, and we know that's just the tip of the iceberg because, as, as Sam's pointed out, it takes enormous resilience and resources Absolutely. to be able to take an issue to the AAT. We need to deal with this issue at its source, and it comes back to our conversation about a capable NDIA. We need best practice planning yeah. and assessment as a core part of the NDIS, not shortcut planning as was, as was envisaged through independent assessments. This is an investment. Good planning is an investment in the equity and sustainability of the scheme. And best practice planning and assessment is done by multidisciplinary teams observing the person with a disability in multiple settings and recognising their goals and then identifying what support needs they need in order to fully participate. It's a complex process. And the, as long as we try to take shortcut approaches we'll continue to see an excessive number of people um, seeking plan reviews, going to the AAT and experiencing the sort of fear and stress 
that Sam has talked about. It's got to stop. And, and I completely agree with everything Bruce has said, George, but I, I would add two things. There's two very quick fixes as well as doing what Bruce has said. And Bill nailed this. He said, get plans right in the first place. And I thought that was absolutely true. Mm -hmm. But um, the second thing he said was introduce immediately a dispute resolution process before the AAT. And that's a very easy fix. But the third thing to do is what we did at the Human Rights Commission, still do as far as I know, when I was, um, when I was there, uh, and what I've advocated to the agency and to government um, for the past four or five years, and that is to introduce a database of the details of complaint settlements so that people, before they decide whether they go to the AAT, can go and have a look at how similar complaints were settled and get a sense of um, what they might expect um, from either a dispute resolution process or an AAT decision. It's really easy. It's open. It lets people with disabilities get a far greater understanding of the sort of um, decisions that are being made. It's far more transparent and it's going to address a lot of this big spend. Yeah, that's a, that's a really useful recommendation. Thank you. Well, let's turn to advocacy funding. I, I, I was reflecting on this and when I saw the $31 million uh, figure, I think it was around that $30 million that the agency has spent on lawyers. And then I thought, yep. and, they, and it's $100 million for uh, the funding of community legal services mm. over four years. Mm. Sorry, that's not right there, is it? <laughs> no. And that's $31 million in eight months, George. So what, what needs to happen? Sam, Sam. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to be Labor right now? I'd just be going, geez, I don't know if I'd want to take this on, to be honest. But, um, <laughs> you know, if you had to, um, look, I don't think I'd want to take it on. I think it needs to be undone back to when it was good and working. You know, we need to look at what worked and what has worked and um, return it to that. One of the biggest things that is going to be an issue is that, um, they've purchased a system, a Salesforce system, and introduced algorithms to make decisions. So we've got machine learning, um, which is artificial intelligence, which all sounds, you know, for us boomers and near boomers, it's a little bit, you know, terrifying to think about. Um, but it involves putting past data in to predict what future outcomes are going to look like, basically, and then the machine does the job for you. The problem is when the people who put the data in are the people who, A, don't really know much about you, then, you know, what does that look like? And then, B, if they have some sort of bias, and I'd suggest that the bias might be saving money for the agency, then um, it's not necessarily going to work very well for people with disability. And so all of these appeals have happened since they've implemented that system, since we've had these machine learning making decisions for people with disability. So I think a lot needs to happen. I think we need a board which is truly in control, which is comprised of people with disability who know what the scheme looks like on the ground. Um, there was an article, there was a story about Aspen Health and one of the founder is on the board of the NDIA. I think that's possibly a concern. Um, so, you know, there's, there's issues, I think, that's really about people with disability um, taking charge of the scheme and for there to be more accountability and transparency to make sure that it's working well. Because when it's working well, that's when you save money. Absolutely. 
let's talk, turn to the issue of uh, people with disabilities who are stuck in hospital. It's an issue that, that needs urgent attention. I didn't episode uh, a few weeks ago on this, a woman that's been in hospital for almost a year. Um, Bruce, what did you think of the responses to the, the question of people stuck in the health system? We need to look at this issue of people with disabilities stuck in the health system as being symptomatic of a much bigger issue because people with disability need to interface and get services from not just health, but also from education, from the just, from justice, and also from housing. And today, I think the way these issues are essentially approached is from the issue, from the perspective of cost. And how can I, as the guardian, the governor, the manager of these particular silos, how can I minimise my costs? That's why we've got the issue of people with disability stuck in hospitals. We need to completely change this to one which is person-centred and says we're going to put the needs and uh, the needs and requirements, the reasonable and necessary requirements and needs of people with disability first and sort out the whole issue of who pays in the background. Until we, As long as we approach this from cost first, this will be an issue. And so we need to fundamentally change the culture of these service silos so that they are truly person-centred and that the people who are running them have got relationships with the other silos, with other levels of government, so these issues can be sorted out and sorted out very quickly. It's just wrong that we've got people with disability languishing in hospital when they should be out in the community. And it's quite clear that there's a cost to that beyond the financial cost, and that's the cost to their mental health. And so they don't emerge from the hospital experience, you know, under the medical model healed because they haven't been treated, first and foremost, as citizens with rights and with the right to an ordinary life. Yeah, it's also their physical health. I don't think the hospital's a great place for your, your, your rehabilitation for kidding getting back to being well again. Kirsten, any reflections from you? I think this is one of the areas where um, the real nitty-gritty design and policy work just hasn't been done. As Bruce said, all we've done is argue about costs. Um, and in this, both the Commonwealth and the state and territory governments have all frankly been as bad as each other in terms of disappearing off the field and hoping that the NDIS will uh, pick up the slack um, and so you've got you've got a mess where in my view um, the NDIA and the NDIS are now paying for things that I think are other people's responsibility and vice and vice versa they would argue that they're now paying for things that they think is the NDIS's responsibility so that those whole what were called the COAG principles which 
try to draw hard lines between this is NDIS and this is kind of other systems responsibility instead of it as Bruce said going well what does the person need and how's everybody going to work together Um, and this is part of the issue about why we've ended up with the kind of with the NDIS is that it was it's it wasn't just that it was not meant to be an oasis in the desert it was meant to be part of a system where everything else kind of worked and and that hasn't that hasn't happened at all. And Commonwealth and state and territory governments have to take responsibility for it. And the NDIA have to take responsibility that they haven't um, exactly been willing players in getting everybody together and and making it work from the perspective of people with disability and their families. Because you know, from the perspective of a person with disability, it doesn't matter which level of government funds it and is responsible for it. It just needs to be done. And so that that's the approach we should be taking. Oh, that that is so true. And I think that um, when we look at, you know, education as well, like all the all the different types of government, you know, if it ends up being seen as, you know, you're disabled, you're the NDIS's, you know, issue, then the whole system's gonna collapse. So we need all parts of government to address the issue. Let's talk about workforce. Goodness me, it's not easy to find people um, to, to work in the sector at the moment. It's going to get harder as unemployment drops. What are your thoughts on the responses that we got around the, the workforce issue? Can I go to you, Bruce? Well, look, I, I don't think we've heard from anyone really about how they're going to deal with the very significant workforce issues that you refer to. I think there are really three points that are vital. The first is that the workforce, the disability workforce plan must be part of a human services workforce plan because people move from disability to aged care to health. And so we can't afford to be robbing Peter to pay Paul. So we need an overall strategy across human services. I think the second point is that when we think about these workforces, we have to think about it at a quite disaggregated level. There are different skills and they're different locations. So we really have multiple labour markets. There's not a single disability uh, labour market. And so we need to deal with some of the very specific issues that exist it's very clear there's a very significant shortage of allied health professionals, not just in disability, but in aged care and health. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be a focus on that. It's also very clear that we have very significant workforce issues in remote communities. What we have now are fly-in, fly-out models predominating, which is clearly suboptimal. So not only is it suboptimal for people with disability in those communities, it's missing a golden opportunity to create long-term permanent jobs for Indigenous people in those communities. And I think the third point to make is that all the discussion to date has focused on the specialist disability workforce. We need workers, employees, business people right across the community who understand and want people with disability as their customers. And so we also need to think about workforce training much more broadly. So we have 
the inclusive community that we hope the NDIS would deliver. Absolutely. Sandra, Yeah, look, the workforce thing is an ongoing nightmare. Referring back to Aspen, you know, we have these externally sourced contract agencies who say they're going to deliver and then don't, or they deliver underqualified people, you know, people who are recent graduates, etc. You know, like there's really, I was on the original workforce working group just during the architecture of the NDIS and the amount of sham contracting that goes on now, um, subcontracting to, you know, lesser providers and to um, individuals, there's so many rorts going on in our workforce where we had some golden opportunities in the past, I think, and I think COVID was the... um, COVID was the time that really showed, the beginning of the pandemic really showed when it started to kick off, um, how frail our workforce was. I was doing a radio interview with um, an Aboriginal station and they said it was like the potholes in the road when the water went out in the wet, you know, up in up north. And I thought it was such a good example, you know, that where there were those existing dips and low-lying areas, they were now massive potholes that you could see and couldn't drive across and that's where we're at now you know so we have um we could do so much better you know we don't even think about people with disability ourselves being a workforce there's just no attention to that there's no understanding from the unions that um people with disability are employers um there's no discussion ever about self-managers being able to make a buck stretch of 20,000 kilometres, you know. And so we could have done things so much better. We still could, but I think we really need to start putting people with disability back at the heart of the scheme when it comes to workers. Let's talk about that research. Okay. I was just going to say, um, Sam made the point I was about to make, which is we are, even with um, low unemployment levels and don't start me on that because i think they misrepresent the real situation but um even with low unemployment levels we're not talking about fixing the general workforce problems in australia by employing people with disabilities we're talking about bringing more people in from overseas getting retirees back into the workforce all useful strategies but having people with disabilities in the workforce is just not even part of the conversation. So um, it really needs to be both in the NDIS uh, workforce and in the broader workforce. Yeah, George, can I add to that? Because your example is a really good one of kind of what I was a bit frustrated with the response responses is that there's an enormous diversity of people with disability who, who are relying on the scheme for support. And it's everything from um, personal care, you know, someone to get you out of bed in the morning, you know, through to, you know, some of the social and community participation stuff, through to people who have really complex needs and who need some really skilled people in their life, through to like one of the things that we employ in our house, household because my daughter's trying to get a job is we employ a work coach. And there is a world of difference from the person who might come um, and get you out of bed in the morning to the work coach that we're Absolutely. employing for my daughter. And so, we're, again, I'm really frustrated by this very simplistic conversation that we're having about the workforce when actually we need a bunch of workforces yeah. Yeah. who have all different skills and who are really tailored to particular kinds of jobs because you'll get different kind of people attracted to different kinds of jobs. And we're having this kind of really one-dimensional conversation about it when actually in disability 
um, we actually need really different skill sets and really different kinds of people and at different times. And so this kind of will build the workforce seems a bit silly to me. You're absolutely right. So I think we need to be careful when we start talking about mandatory qualifications because mandatory qualifications for, for someone, you know, in your daughter's situation would be different to mine. And, you know, I, I, I just feel very concerned when, and then I, I rose with, with uh, Mr. Thornton um, and I said, you know, we need diversity and we don't need people to tell us who should work with us. Let's turn to self-management, Sam. Um, on that topic of uh, registered and unregistered providers, it's been a bit of a hot topic. Um, what, what are your thoughts on, on that issue? And, and Kirsten, I'll also um, bring you in on this. Some people might not know that my background prior to being a um, difficult troublemaker was that I'd spent 12 years at um, um, a TAFE <laughs> as a manager being a difficult troublemaker there. And so in terms of understanding just what that qualification looks like now, because we're talking about a Cert 3 when people talk about, you know, Cert 3 or Cert 4 of disability or aged care is what people are talking about. Really, there is nothing in that qualification that actually qualifies you to deliver that training. There might be some electives around, um, you know, lifting, manual handling, around record keeping, around, um, you know, administering medication. But generally, they're really not skill sets that are common to anything. And as we all know, people with disability have completely different needs and need different types of support. The number of people with disability who say to me they either won't have a person, you know, who has been trained because they have to untrain them um, or, you know, they just, they just refuse um, is hugely problematic. And then we have, you know, the hot topic part is that we do have people who have medical needs where people absolutely need to know what they're doing if it's in terms of administering medication, especially if the person can't um, advocate for themselves. Um, you know, just, just basic things around pressure sores and how to recognise them, you know, just those sorts of nursing qualifications. So I do think it's a case of having people match to the person with a disability and making sure they've got the skills that we, that we need. Um, qualifications might be something that um, might reassure a person just in the same way that, you know, police checks do, et cetera, et cetera. But really quite often it's a person with a disability who, um, who really, you know, you learn on the job and preferably by buddying up with another support worker, right, while you're training. Uh, that's right. Kirsten? Um, I just wanted to go back to the, because it's a related issue, this issue about um, registered and unregistered providers and self-managed participants. So it's related to the workforce issue. And I know I'm going to sound like a terrible broken record, but again, I thought there was a really simplistic response to this about kind of, you know, registered and unregistered providers and people who are self-managing using unregistered providers is that it kind of ends up as a conversation as registered providers, good, unregistered providers, bad. It's just worth taking a moment to say Anne-Marie Smith's provider was a registered 
provider. And on the other hand, um, I use a couple of uh, registered providers to provide support um, uh, for my daughter with a disability and we get awesome value for money and I'm really happy with them. So I just think, again, like some of these other areas, we're having this really simplistic sort of um, discussion about this is good, this is bad. And in actual fact, um, what we we're we're asking the wrong questions. To me, the right question is: What have we got to do to get good quality services? What have we got to do to make sure that people with disability um, are safe? Um, how can we make sure that people are getting good outcomes from their services, not just spending their dough, but what outcomes are they getting? And in particular, and the last, and I think the most important question is: How are we supporting people with disability to make the those decisions um, and make those choices because it's enormously frustrating to me that we have let this market kind of rip and and we've talked about the supply of services and we don't talk about investing in people with disability in the families to make sure that they've got all the information that they need to make choices are they supported to make choices and this isn't about just getting information to work your way through the maze of the NDIS this is about how do you choose good services? What's a good quality service? What outcome are you shooting for? How can you negotiate kind of that, you know? Um, and what, what does good look like is the other thing. What does, yeah, and Here's also the, the question about what does good look like is are you getting, um, are, are you, are we, is the NDIS driving inclusion in the community or are we just driving more tourism in the community where people yep. with disability are out in it but not part of it? Mm. And that's the, the big meta question about the kind of NDIS, about the quality of services, is are we driving inclusion or not? And if people would, um, and we're not, if we're not driving inclusion, what are we going to do about it? I want to kind of something that's quite serious. And that's the issue of violence, abuse, neglect, and exploitation. Claire, I'll bring you in here. What did you think of the responses of our politicians to this question? What would you recommend that's done? Well, I, I think um, uh, Jordan really addressed this question the best of the, uh, of the three. Um, choice, choice and control by people with disabilities um, and, and maximising that. Um, uh, making sure that there are um, protocols which ensure people's um, uh, safety, particularly um, vulnerable people who might be on their own. So focusing on where the the issues are likely to occur and and trying to um, prevent this sort of stuff happening um, before it occurs. You're not always going to be able to do that, but that's the place you should be starting from. Um, So... Um, uh, yeah, I, I, um, I thought he really um, took that from the perspective of, um, of the person with disabilities and, a, and a, a more person-centred approach, which is really the message I've been hearing all the way through this podcast. Sarah? Oh, we've got so many things. There's, um, you know, four... We're in the middle of a Disability Royal Commission that we fought for for 20 years, and it feels like... I don't know, we're just picking low-hanging fruit. People with disability aren't being heard. Under 30% of the people who have testified to date are people with disability. We're having perpetrators who are testifying. There's, you know, we're having discussions about um, inclusive schooling but not versus non-inclusive schooling, but we can't use terminology around segregation, you know. So we really, 
you know, we have the biggest crisis that we've ever had with this pandemic and people with disability are in those potholes in the road right now. Um, I think the politicians have a fairly decent understanding of what violence looks like, but I think there's just such a lack of appetite to address it because, as um, Kirsten was saying um, earlier about letting the market rip, we've kind of put the foxes in charge of the hen house, right? You know, we've said to providers, you're self-governing, you're self-regulating, you're going to look after yourselves. And for people with disability, um, unless we're in charge of our lives, we are at more risk. The more cotton-wooled we are, the more wrapped up in cotton wool, the less likely we are, like Anne-Marie Smith, to be able to get out from under provider capture. It just There needs to be so much change within the NDIS um, to make sure that violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation is addressed. And I think until we address those issues and we start to return the balance of power to people with disability, um, we're still at risk. Let's end with uh, going around and getting everyone's reflections on what, uh, what, what we think uh, we need uh, to consider when we uh, all go to vote on the 21st um, of May. And, and also your final words on, on who you think might win and uh, what you think they're going to need to do. That's a tough one, isn't it? Um, how about I start with you, Graham? Thanks, George. Well, um, incumbency in government has advantages and disadvantages. When you're the incumbent government, you're probably better known. You've got control of the levers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but the disadvantage that you can have if you uh, haven't governed well is that your record of what you do will be examined probably more than your record of what you say. And whilst Linda said some interesting things um, in her message or her podcast with you, George, um, there, there's a 10-year record of this government um, not doing the right thing as far as the NDIS is concerned. Um, I won't go over all of the issues that we've already mentioned, but everything that's been raised as a concern with the NDIS has happened on this government's watch. So if your focus at this election is on defending the NDIS, then you can't vote for the current government. Th that um, then takes me to the other two. Uh, and I think that's where real politic um, has an effect. Um, Jordan said some great things. Um, he uh, certainly, as a person with a disability, totally gets uh, you know, disability policy, putting people with disabilities at the centre of things and improving the NDIS. I'm, I'm confident about that. But he will only ever be the minor um, party in a coalition government if that even occurs. So in that sense, um, a vote for the Greens is problematic because, um, you know, you, you're, you're voting for the party that um, even in a coalition, uh, if that was to occur, is going to have least control. So the only thing that you can do is vote for... Um, uh, a Labor government, uh, and you, if you do that, the likelihood is that um, uh, that Bill um, Shorten will be the minister. He was there at the start of the NDIS. I'm not saying he's the complete problem solver, but he is a good problem solver, and he gets 
a lot of the philosophies behind the NDIS. So, and George, I'm only giving you my view if NDIS is your one issue um, for, the, for the many listeners you have to this podcast. Um, it's pretty clear in my view that you have to vote Labor. So we are bipartisan, of course, as an organisation. And, of course, we all have individual views as people with disability who we're going to vote for. I'd encourage anybody to vote for exactly who they want to vote for. But I think that um, for people with disability, it's really important that we find out exactly what the intention is of that government that you're voting for. Um, we, we, we did an election scorecard that we're putting up shortly, um, which has got responses. We haven't had all the responses back. We've had them back from the Greens and Labor. Labor have got a very comprehensive disability policy. I couldn't find a disability policy for the LNP, so um, looking forward to seeing that if it emerges before the election. Um, I think that you need to be informed and you need to make sure that your interests are represented and you know, if you're a person who has traditionally always voted for one party, it might be time to make a change um, one way or the other. I'm just, I just think that um, I think there will be a change in government, but of course we don't know which way it's going to go. But I think the, the Teals and the Independents will probably get a fair run and um, I think Labor are in with a good chance. Um, and Bill Shorten, who... I talk to, just like I do Linda and everybody else, knows that we will keep them honest if they get into government as well. Yeah. So, you know, um, as people who are advocating for our rights, we make sure that we advocate to everybody. Ruth? Look, um, I don't know who's going to win this election. Um, you know, I, from my perspective, it's too hard to call. I don't think polls have been particularly um, reliable in, in, in recent times. I think the way this issue needs to be framed is around what are the key things we want the next government to deliver. And from my perspective, the most important thing that the next government must do and the NDIA must also work with them to deliver is trust. Trust is broken between the NDIA and people with disability. It's got to be rebuilt, and it's in the absence of trust, the NDIS will never deliver what it was intended to do. Yep. The second part of that is that the NDIS promised certainty, certainty to people with disability and certainty to families, and that's also been broken. So that must be restored. The issues confronting the NDIS, you know, which we've elaborated on in the last hour and could spend another several hours talking about, are very, very significant. And so there are no and there are no quick fixes. What we need now is a deep commitment to evidence-based reform of the NDIS. Not refinement, but reform, so it delivers on the original vision. And that can only be built on independent research because the agency is not trusted. And then that independent research has to be become the basis of a genuine co-design process. 
which brings all parts of the disability community together, but most importantly, people with disability and their lived experience. And it also needs to bring people who are not necessarily going to agree together. Co true co-design is a contested process. What we have at the moment is not a contested process. We have co-design of matters that are very minor and no genuine co-design. We need to recognise that this is going to take time. You know, the, you know, as Graham has said, these problems have not developed overnight. We need to embrace complexity, recognise that there are no silver bullets, and, in fact, searching and seeking to identify silver bullets carries enormous risk of misstep with very significant unintended consequences, some of which have already occurred. But if we take this path, and it's a difficult path, it's a complex path, I still believe the NDIS could be the best disability system in the world. And so I'm looking for the party that's going to deliver that. Esther, back at last. Um, well, I, I'm like Bruce. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know who's going to win uh, the election. But what I do know is that um, if you do believe the polls, uh, it's close. So, again, like Sam, I'm not going to say uh, who to vote for, but I am going to say your vote counts. Um, your vote, And from my perspective, um, the NDIS is absolutely at a crossroads. More than any other election that we've had in the last 10 years, um, uh, what happens to the NDIS after this election depends on this election. Um, uh, there are many paths that it could go down and what it will end up looking like in the future will be determined at this election. So I would say to the people out there who are listening um, to the podcast is that more than any other time, if the NDIS is important to you, your vote counts at this time. Um, and I would say that I was... I do think the NDIS is at a crossroads and so I found it disturbing from uh, the Minister to talk about the need for improvements to the scheme, which tended to suggest some sort of tinkering around the edges. I think we are so far past that. Um, well, I think what we need to do with the NDIS is strip it back to basics, get back to basics and ask two really simple questions is, what do we want the scheme to deliver? for people with disability and then what's the best way to make sure that it does that. So no more thought bubbles from whoever um, and then running that out. We really need to get back to the basic design principles about what do we want it to deliver for people with disability and what's the best way to do that. And the only way we can answer those questions is if people with disability, their families and their organisations are at the table and power is shared every single step of the yep. way and so um and that is more than uh co-design and i know a lot of promises have been made about co-design but i would also note that while we are having this conversation there is for example a tender out which is going to for local area coordinators and for early childhood partners which outlines what their job is going to be for the next five years 
And so on the one hand, we've got promises about co-design and then we are already barreling ahead with what the scheme will look like and what those partners will do in the scheme already out to kind of to tender. So I am less interested in parties out giving me a laundry list of the things that they're going to do. That's the what. I'm interested in the how. How are you going to work with people with disability and their families to get this scheme uh, to deliver on its promise? And that's what I'm looking for in this election. And the future of the scheme depends on it. What an amazing discussion. You've all uh, brought your incredible experience to the table and shared it with our listeners. I hope that uh, whoever does win um, puts the NDIS as a another one priority and making sure that it is the scheme that we all we all asked for back in 2012. That's what we deserve, that's what we asked for, and that's what we want the next government to deliver. So Kirsten, Bruce, Graham, Sam, thank you for your time. Thanks, George. Thanks so much, George. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Thanks, George. Okay. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary. Remember that this is just one of a series of episodes for the federal election. So make sure you check them all out. To be notified of future episodes, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and the notification bell. You can also follow me on Twitter at DrJorgeTheTrip. Thanks for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.